Right, if everyone wants to come in and sit down, uh, please avail yourself of... There is such a thing as a free lunch. Well, you have to listen to Steve after you eat the lunch, but uh, I think that's, that's an added bonus. You are paying a high price for, uh, for a sandwich. Right. Well, it, it gives me uh, great pleasure to welcome uh, both uh, a target of my admiration and friendship, uh, Professor Stephen Heidemann, the US, United States Institute of Peace, where he is, a wonderful title, the Vice President for Applied Research on Conflict. Uh, but more importantly, uh, Steve is a, a superb uh, comparative political scientist, uh, whose book, Author Authority in Syria, Institutions and Social Conflict, I think is a must read for anyone seeking to understand uh, the current conflict from a historical and social science perspective. But uh, this is, we've, we've labelled this Steve Heidemann Week because he's, he's giving three events, uh, one last night, one today and one tomorrow, on completely different topics, which I think uh, shows both uh, his skill and the breadth and depth of his, um, his knowledge and approach. But more importantly today, I think, probably fair to say, or at least in, in my little world, what he's really well known for is his work on recalibrating authoritarianism in the Middle East, which we're going to talk about today. Steve and I first met in 2006 when we were both in Washington working on long-range planning in the Middle East, trying to understand the dynamics of uh, where the region was going. And he then presented, first time for me, this notion of recalibrating authoritarianism, making sustainable the dictatorships of the Middle East, not from a point of view of uh, advice, but an, an analysis. Um, and of course then, that was written up. And we would have thought somewhat that we should have recanted in 2011 with the Arab Spring. But of course, uh, social scientists are much smarter than historians and certainly uh, journalists. We, we held, our, held our, 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 our argument. And of course, the Middle East doesn't look so different in 2014 than it looked in 2006. And I think it's, it's Steve's um, perception and, and, and insight through this work on recalibrating authoritarianism uh, that, that has given rise to that, to that kind of stability of analysis. So I was very keen that he would give a much more relaxed kind of interactive seminar. There was quite a lot of interaction last night at the lecture as well. Yeah. So um, we have a couple of hours. I think we have till three o'clock. Steve's going <laughs> to speak for as long as he wants and then we can have just a broad discussion around his core concepts, how they apply to the Middle East and, and their strengths and weaknesses. So Steve, take it away. Thank you. Uh, and, and Toby, I really do appreciate the generosity of, of LSE and, and of the Middle East Center in particular in, in offering me the chance to participate in these multiple forums. It's, it's, it really is a fabulous, um, a fabulous setting. Uh, it, it is, uh, I think, a terrific demonstration of how active and engaged the Middle East Center is and, and how uh, vibrant its work has become uh, with Toby as, as director and with a fabulous staff as well. Sandra has been wonderful in, in, in putting all of this together. So I, I very much appreciate the opportunity to have the chance to, to talk about these different subjects. Um, it, it saves me perhaps three separate trips to London, which of course has benefits of its own. And in case you weren't around uh, for yesterday's um, presentation, uh, I, I did mention that one of the new innovations that the Middle East Center at LSE is introducing is a frequent speakers program in which we will receive bonus points for every lecture that we give. And, and so I'm still trying to, to persuade um, it, 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 Toby that, that, the, that the prize should be something significant, but, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. 
Um, I, I, I do want to focus uh, in my comments today on on this notion of, how, of of the recalibration of authoritarian regimes, of how uh, authoritarian regimes in the Arab world have responded to the various kinds of challenges and pressures that they've faced, and in particular, how they've done so in response to the challenges posed by uh, by the Arab uprisings, which present, in my view, a very, very distinctive kind of challenge to authoritarian regimes in the Arab world, and that is the challenge of mass politics, the challenge of mass collective uh, action on the part of Arab citizens. And, um, and, and I thought I would do that rather than by jumping into a discussion of the Arab uprisings and regime responses to the Arab uprisings, which I have tended to frame at least in part in terms of this notion of authoritarian upgrading uh, that I've been focusing on for some time, that I would, I would try and do two or three things in my comments uh, this afternoon. One of which is to provide a bit of an intellectual kind of history of how we arrived at um, a, a research program organized around the question of authoritarian persistence. Where did that come from? What were some of the impulses that sparked uh, interest on the part of Middle East comparativists in questions of authoritarian resilience? So I thought I would give you kind of a very quick sort of potted history of how this issue uh, became a fully formed research program within comparative politics of the Middle East, just so that you have... A, a kind of overview of, 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 its, of its origins and its development. What I then wanted to do was say a little bit about authoritarian upgrading, a very little bit about that, and then talk about how that concept may or may not help us understand the ways in which authoritarian regimes have responded to the challenges of, of the Arab uprisings, of the Arab Spring. So, so you know, in focusing on, on this notion of authoritarian upgrading, um, this is an idea that I began to explore uh, more than a decade ago now as part of a larger research program within Middle East comparative politics that has taken as its central concern how we can account for the durability and persistence of authoritarian regimes in the Arab world. This is a research program that has a large number of different strands. There are many different authors who have contributed to it. Many of the elements of this research program operate in tension with one another. In fact, one of the things I would say about this research program is that we have seen over the last decade or so the proliferation of theories about the persistence of authoritarianism in the Arab world, and that one of the and we can talk about some of those if they're of any interest. But one of the real shortcomings of this research program, I think, is that there has been very little interaction among them. There has been very little effort on the part of scholars focusing on this question of resilience to test their claims, their arguments against competing claims and arguments. And so the field does um, have, I think, a great deal of, of, of life to it. There's a lot going on 
but I would argue that it's also a little bit fragmented and one of my own hopes is that a subsequent generation of research on resilience and the reconfiguration of authoritarian governance in the Arab world will involve much more direct encounters and interaction between some of the competing hypotheses that are now circulating in the field. But what gives the, the field, to the extent we can call it that, coherence um, is that it emerged as a shared reaction, as a kind of common reaction against the underlying assumptions that had tended to define much of the research uh, within the field of comparative politics of the Middle East from the mid-1980s to, to the 1990s, maybe even the late 1990s. This was a period in which, if you'll recall, the third wave, a global process of democratization, was at its peak. This was a period that encompasses the collapse of the Soviet Union and the authoritarian breakdowns and democratic transitions in, in, in Eastern Europe. And for scholars of the Middle East who were keenly aware that the third wave seemed to have transformed regimes in virtually every world region except the one in, uh, in which they were most interested, this was a period in which a central preoccupation of Middle East scholars was in fact not to explain the resilience or the persistence of authoritarianism, but to explain the failure of the Arab world to democratize. So it was failures of democratization rather than authoritarian persistence that tended to shape research on uh, the comparative politics of the Middle East during much of the, the 80s uh, in, into the 90s. And this focus on failure rather than a focus on resilience has very, very implications, very, very important implications. It presents very, very different starting points for the way your research is organized, for the kinds of questions that you're asking. If your focus is on failure to democratize, then what becomes central is to understand why something that allegedly should have happened, in fact did not happen. The focus becomes to explain what it is that's missing uh, in the Arab world, that's present in other regions that did experience democratization. There's a focus on highlighting why certain conditions and certain variables that were felt to be very closely associated with democratization in other world regions, like the presence of a vibrant civil society, were somehow not present in the Arab world. De Tocqueville left us with this notion that civil societies functioned in effect as carriers of democracy, as, as carriers of democratic experiences, norms, values. And even though we did seem to have rather vibrant civil societies in the Middle East, they didn't seem to function in the way that de Tocqueville had anticipated. Egypt widely uh, believed to have something like 30,000 uh, registered civil society organizations in the early 2000s is clearly a case in which the presence of a vibrant civil society was completely consistent 
with the presence of a persistent authoritarian regime. So there's a sense in which variables that contributed to democratization in other world regions were not doing so in the Arab world. This is part of this notion of, of, of failure. An additional inclination of this focus on failure is to attach enormous causal weight to factors and conditions that seem to define the Arab world as exceptional. And there are two in particular that occupy particularly important positions within the research literature. One, I'm sure you're all well familiar with it, is the tension between Islam and democracy as an explanation for why the region had failed to democratize. And the other, which you may also be quite familiar with, is this notion that somehow the political trajectories of the Arab world have been um, constrained in terms of democratization by the presence of patriarchal, autocratic political cultures. And that it's these cultural legacies that have stood in the way of the region's democratization. And one of the most vivid examples of that kind of logic appeared in a book by a Moroccan political scientist now based at Princeton, Abdullah Hamoudi. I don't know if you've read his book called Master and Disciple. It's a very interesting uh, book to read if you want to get an intelligent um, uh, 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 exposition of this particular notion that the authoritarianism uh, that we see in these countries at the level of governance grew out of political cultures that were themselves profoundly authoritarian in their forms and, and, and in their, their content. And so the, the, general, the general sort of um, orientation on explaining failure as the focus of research programs in Middle East comparative politics was quite influential. Um, I can't tell you the number of dissertations it shaped uh, in, in the 1980s and, and, and 1990s for a fairly extended period. However, by the late 1990s, I think it became increasingly clear what the limits of this focus on failed democratization were. And uh, among its most important shortcomings, I think, was its really almost complete neglect of what it is that these authoritarian regimes were actually doing, of how it was that these authoritarian regimes were actually governing. There was very little attention, for example, to what role their governance practices, their institutional arrangements, their social and economic policies, their regulatory and security apparatuses, what role these elements of these regimes played in keeping these regimes in power, but not only keeping these regimes in power, in addition, what role these variables played in containing and disorganizing challenges to these regimes. So that by the late 1990s and early 2000s, I think it had become clear that focusing on, on these kinds of questions, what is it that these authoritarian regimes are doing, in fact offered much more productive starting points for getting at the question of the durability and persistence of these uh, authoritarian systems of, of, of rule. And we begin to see the field of authoritarian persistence take shape, displacing an earlier emphasis on the need to explain failures of, of democratization. And I do think that by and large this has been a very productive shift. 
and it's generated a large body of interesting and important literature. It is a literature which, as I mentioned earlier, remains quite fragmented, but I think it has significantly advanced our understanding of how politics work in the Arab world. In my own case, um, you know, I had been uh, focused on issues of authoritarian governance for, for some time. Um, I wrote my PhD thesis between uh, 88 and 90. It was on authoritarianism in Syria, as, as, as uh, later became my first book, but the initial title was Successful Authoritarianism in Syria. And my uh, thesis supervisor said, and, and remember, this was in precisely the moment when, when Eastern European revolutions were unfolding. He said, boy, this is a, uh, a pretty dark view. Uh, and he said, this is neo-pessimism. That's how the thesis was defined at the time. But by the mid-2000s, I began to focus on what I perceived at least really as one of the central puzzles that we still had to address in trying to understand authoritarian persistence. And that is, how is it that these regimes that were so often described as rigid, as, as brittle, as archaic, as cumbersome, as, as unresponsive, as behind, as dinosaurs that had failed to keep up with transformations in the world, how is it that these regimes were nonetheless able to respond to and adapt in the face of the extraordinary pressures and challenges that they faced in the early uh, 2000s, in the late 1990s and the early 2000s. Just to give you an example of some of these, these, these pressures, this was a period in which Arab regimes were under extraordinary pressure from Western states and international institutions to deepen and broaden <coughs> processes of economic and political liberalization. In the years from 2003 to 2005, these were also regimes that bore the brunt of the most militaristic phase of the Bush administration's push for political reform in the region. You may remember sort of the, the New Middle East framework that came out of his administration, some of the more uh, aggressive speeches he made after the invasion of Iraq around the imperative of democratic change in the Arab world. That was among the pressures that these regimes were forced to contend with. They confronted significant pressures deriving from broader processes of economic globalization. There were, of course, as we all know, enormous challenges associated with the rise of new communications technologies and the thought at the time that these would play a critical role in the unraveling of authoritarian regimes and in diminishing the capacity of these regimes to surveil, monitor, regulate uh, what it is that their citizens were, were saying about them, and in addition minimize or, or, or erode their capacity to regulate uh, the ability of citizens to organize through these new social media. And they also faced enormous pressures from within, from among their own societies, especially from urban Arab middle classes who were putting pressure on these regimes to broaden opportunities for economic 
uh, autonomy, who simply wanted more space to be able to pursue their, their economic futures without so much oversight and regulation from, from the regime. And what became clear uh, in researching how these supposedly clunky and supposedly archaic regimes were navigating this constellation of challenges that they confronted in the late 1990s and early 2000s is that in fact they seem to demonstrate a much greater capacity for adaptation than had often been perceived and that they were both much more flexible and much more capable of responding to these challenges than some of the earlier characterizations of these regimes had had suggested. In addition, what I found as I began to look at how they were navigating these challenges is that if you begin to unpack the specific tools and the specific instruments and strategies that these regimes were deploying to make their way in these new demanding economic and political circumstances, we could see very, very clear similarities across the region in the, 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 the way in which these regimes were responding to these pressures. There, there was, in fact, a very clear model, a very clear template, if you will, that, regime, that regimes were following. And it's this model, this template, that I characterized in terms of authoritarian upgrading. Um, I highlighted uh, five key um, yeah, five key elements as the key features of authoritarian upgrading. not repressing civil societies, but appropriating them, linking them more tightly to the state to limit their capacity for autonomous action, managing political contestation in the sense that these regimes embraced electoral forms of politics, but again did so in ways that tended to reinforce their authority rather than to produce meaningful shifts in the distribution of political power regimes were quite responsive, at least rhetorically, to demands for economic reform, but these were enormously selective. They were politically, processes of political liberalization were, were politically managed, and they were used as opportunities to restructure the distribution of resources to the networks and social groups that regimes relied on for support. They all established very effective technologies for controlling new communications. Some of the software that <coughs> equipped these regimes to control and surveil traffic across the Internet was provided by the United States. Um, one of the early proposals I made uh, to, to government in the U.S. is that we begin to control the export of Internet um, internet surveillance software uh, in much the same way that we imposed end-user constraints on sales of weapons. That went nowhere. But um, we also saw that because international pressure was growing from Western governments, the U.S. in particular, but not alone, for these regimes to liberalize and, and democratize, that they made adjustments in their 
broader diplomatic relationships, in their broader economic relationships and strategic and security relationships in ways that gave them the capacity to insulate themselves from Western diplomatic, economic, and military pressures. So these, these were based, I mean, this is what I defined as kind of the template that I, I tended to characterize as a strategy of, of authoritarian upgrading. And I think we can see the elements of this strategy in virtually every single country in the region, even though it was never followed in kind of lockstep. There's lots of variation in how it was implemented, but these elements, I think, if you look at them, they're present almost everywhere in the region. Certainly they were by the mid-2000s. By, by mid and I would argue that it's this adaptive capacity and the ability of these regimes to undertake this strategy of, of, of authoritarian uprising that explain to a great extent their resilience and their persistence uh, as they confronted the very specific challenges of the late 1990s uh, and, and the early 2000s. So that's then. What about now? This kind of brings us to the Arab uprisings. If these guys are so smart, how come they weren't more stable? Right? If they were so good at adapting, how is it that they weren't able to either anticipate or prevent these Arab uprisings. Well, I, I, before jumping into that, I, I do want to make one observation because I think there have been some misunderstandings along these lines. The point is not that the adaptive capacity of these authoritarian regimes means that they will permanently remain in power. It doesn't mean that they have a degree of adaptive capacity that is sufficient to overcome any kind of shock or challenge that they might confront. I was talking about these ideas at the American University of Cairo in May 2010, about a year before the uprising began, and what I was trying to convey was the sense that these arguments suggest an image of these authoritarian regimes as earthquake-resistant not earthquake-proof. They had developed capacities that reduced the likelihood that they would face regime-threatening pressures, but they certainly did not develop capacities that would completely eliminate the potential emergence of regime-threatening pressures, and I think that's what we saw with the Arab uprisings of, of 2011. I think it's fair to say that even though upgrading did tend to move some of these regimes toward governance strategies that may have been somewhat less repressive, that despite this, the uprisings in 2011 can be seen in some respects as a response to the limits of upgrading, to the limits of the tactics associated with upgrading, and in particular, to the social and economic effects of these selective and politically managed strategies of, of economic reform that in every single Arab state tended to produce very small groups of winners, closest, you know, people closest to regimes, and produced very large categories of losers, in particular among the social groups that had traditionally looked to the state as a provider of employment and as a source of, of economic security. And I think we can see this 
Oh, wait a minute. Go back one. I would say, if you'll f- permit me just to step back a little more. What I think this graph shows us is the impact of authoritarian upgrading on the overall profile of Arab authoritarian regimes in the period, mostly from the 1990s through the Arab uprisings. What we see is a decline in the most rigid category of authoritarian regime, closed autocracies, and modest but sustained increase in regime types characterized as multi-party autocracies. They, They are above the threshold of what is described here in more liberal democratic, not liberal democratic, but, but in electoral democratic terms. And yet we see that there has been a clear change in the governance strategies of Arab regimes during this period in which I think upgrading strategies were, were, were in effect. I meant to say that earlier. So, we have the uprisings, in my view, as a response to the limits and shortcomings of these strategies of authoritarian upgrading, to the reality that even though these strategies produced certain categories of beneficiaries, they also produced very large categories uh, uh, who considered themselves losers under these revised modes of authoritarian governance. And we can see this very clearly when we look, for instance, at comparative employment trends, um, this is from 2009, by the way, World Bank data from 2009, comparing <coughs> unemployment, including both youth and female unemployment, in the MENA region to overall unemployment levels in other world regions. East Asia, Pacific, Latin America, Caribbean, South Asia, SSA, Sub-Saharan Africa, thank you, uh, and MENA. Uh, by any by any standard, you know the the extent to which these societies confronted quite extraordinary uh, unemployment um, circumstances is is quite clear. And boy, this is impossible. What this shows, in effect, is that in most MENA cases highly educated people constitute about 40% of those who were unemployed. And if you're looking at what social constituency is going to move into the streets to express grievances, highly educated unemployed young people have to be at the very, very top, I think, of anyone's list. And we can see, in fact, throughout the 2000s, growing indicators of these economic grievances and the extent to which they are beginning to provide bases for um, political mobilization. This is data taken from Egypt going up to 2008. These are years which, as many of you, I'm sure, are aware, uh, included very significant commodity price shocks that dramatically uh, eroded the standard of living of many Uh, people in the Middle East. But even before the Arab Spring broke out, 
there were significant indicators of escalating economic grievances in a number of, of, of places in the Middle East. This is Egyptian data. I think you'd see similar kinds of figures in, in Tunisia, Morocco, perhaps some other, some other countries as well. And by 2011, this, these trends, this kind of escalation of grievance and anger coalesced uh, and did so in ways that I think we have to acknowledge we still don't fully understand to produce the massive protests of, of early 2011 that sort of shook the Arab world, overthrew <coughs> four Arab incumbents, four men who between them had ruled for 132 years, Ali Abdullah Saleh, Muammar Gaddafi, Hosni Mubarak, and uh, Ben Ali, uh, and um, left these regimes uh, feeling much more deeply threatened than they had at any time, I think, uh, since their emergence in the post-colonial period. So how did they respond? What was the reaction? Did this phase of protest really tell us something about the limits uh, of the adaptive capacity of these regimes? Does it tell us that upgrading strategies had somehow reached their natural limit uh, and that some new set of tactics would be needed by these regimes in order to, to respond to these challenges? And I would say that that is in fact not the case. And I'd suggest that what the uprisings have sparked is in fact not simply the reassertion of the strategies and tactics that these regimes used prior to the uprisings. It, this is not, uh, as I've, I've written elsewhere, a back-to-the-future moment in thinking about authoritarian governance in, in the Arab world. Instead, I think the uprisings provoked a further step in the transformation of authoritarian governance in the Arab world. How did it do that? What, what kinds of, of transformations did we, did we see? Well, I think uh, we have two broad models of authoritarian governance that are emerging in the Arab world in response to the challenges of mass politics, in response to the Arab uprisings. I think the first is a model that I would characterize as authoritarian upgrading 2.0, I'll say more about that in a minute. But there's a second model, and it's a model that I tend to view as far more troubling than uh, authoritarian upgrading 2.0. It's one that I tend to see as a far more decisive rupture with pre-2011 patterns of governance. And I would characterize this as the emergence of what I would define as repressive, exclusionary modes of authoritarian governance that I view as a very significant shift from earlier patterns of what I would define as corporatist, inclusionary, redistributive patterns of authoritarian governance. So on one hand, how, how have these strategies, I mean, how have these transformations unfolded? Well, on one hand, I think we've seen pretty much across the region and without regard for regime type and effort on the part of Arab uh, uh, leaders basically to buy off protesters by at least temporarily increasing redistribution. And we can see this a little bit. This, this captures 
across a variety of regimes, including Lebanon, which in many ways was only indirectly affected by the Arab uprisings, but, but in virtually every country in which protests broke out, um, we saw enormous increases in public spending in the first year after the uprisings to the extent that in Jordan there was something like an almost 200% increase in subsidy expenditures in 2011. Yeah, I, I've defined this as an effort to buy off protesters and so on. So there were a number of common elements that regimes deployed after 2011 to try to contend with the, the threat of mass politics. But beyond this, I think reactions have tended to move in two different directions. We have a small number of cases, countries like Morocco, Jordan, some of the Gulf states, <coughs> where I think regimes have largely sustained and expanded the kinds of tactics that I characterized as authoritarian upgrading, but at the same time they've turned these tactics in a much more repressive direction. And I think we've seen this in some of the shifts in, in um, the practices uh, deployed by the Egyptian regime, by some of the GCC regimes, by a number of others as well. They've sharply more sh moved to more sharply constrained civil societies. They've sharply expanded controls on the media and on communications technology. They've moved to further shift their economic and diplomatic ties away from the West. Um, President Putin it may still be in Egypt, or he may have left, but he was there at least in part to mark a $3.5 billion arms sale to Egypt, uh, one of the first sales on that scale since the presidency of Anwar Sadat when, he broke, when Egypt broke ties with then the Soviet Union. So that, in effect, these regimes haven't so much abandoned the tactics of authoritarian upgrading as to modify and adapt them to respond to the very specific challenges that mass politics pose for regime persistence. But we have this second set of, of, of cases, and, and here I think I tend to view Egypt as at least potentially one of them. I see Syria as one of them. Uh, Iraq and Bahrain might also be examples of this second category, in which authoritarian governance I think is moving in a much darker uh, direction and marks a much sharper break with earlier strategies of authoritarian rule and 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 are in many ways exhibiting strategies that are much more repressive and much more exclusionary than their predecessors and Syria to me at least stands out the regime held areas of Syria stand out as the most extreme example of this second model in all of these cases, regimes have taken steps to very sharply contain and narrow political contestation. They have begun to try to reshape the social bases on which these regimes uh, rely, to build narrower, more um, exclusionary social coalitions. They have expanded the roles and influence of the security apparatus and of the military. In the Syrian case, in the Bahraini case, perhaps in the future in the Yemeni case, these trends are also taking on an explicitly sectarian tone. And we've seen, mostly in the Syrian case, but also to some extent in Egypt and, and in some of, some of these other countries, 
much more far-ranging efforts to uh, develop strategic diplomatic military ties uh, with the aim of insulating the governments from Western pressure, although these take different forms. In, in Egypt, it is Russia and the Gulf that have become principal allies. In Syria, it's, it's Russia and Iran, which have become principal allies. But nonetheless, I think in, in general, this second category of regimes looks to me like it's putting in place a mode of authoritarian governance that, that marks um, a much more dramatic shift than what we've seen uh, in earlier in earlier phases, in pre-2011 <coughs> phases. So, what do we conclude from this? Or, 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 sort of, where does this leave us? If, in fact, I've captured these trends with any degree of accuracy at all, and you can tell me if you think it's complete nonsense, but if, I, if I've sort of captured these general trends in governance with any accuracy at all, we still have the question and I'll sort of wrap up with just a few more minutes on, on this issue, of what accounts for these trends. How do we explain these trends? Even if we take as a starting point that authoritarian regimes in the Arab world do in fact have the kind of recombinant qualities, the kind of adaptive capacity that I've attributed to them, why are these transformations taking on the particular forms um, that I've characterized in my comments today. And I have to tell you, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I, I do have some notional arguments about why these regimes have moved in the specific directions that they have. Um, I'll test them out on you. Again, you can tell me if you think they're completely wrong. But what I've begun to argue is that this shift toward more repressive, more exclusionary forms of authoritarian governance it has a number of different sources. I think in part it's a product of the exhaustion of, of the populist redistributive social pacts, the authoritarian bargains uh, of the 1950s to the 1990s. And this exhaustion really kind of makes it impossible. It sort of rules out the possibility that authoritarian regimes today can restore inclusionary redistributive policies as a response to the economic grievances of their of their populations. They really don't have that option at this point, I don't think. At the same time, I think the exhaustion of these authoritarian bargains suggests that by the late 2000s, these regimes had really reached the, the outer limits of their capacity to balance earlier strategy to, to, to implement the balancing acts that earlier strategies of upgrading required. Uh, what do I mean by that? In earlier phases of, of upgrading, it was necessary for these regimes to hold on to and to continue to articulate the kind of rhetoric and, 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 and discourse of inclusionary redistributive politics that they had mastered in the period since they first emerged. They needed to continue to present, present themselves as providers of economic security for their citizens, even though, over time, their capacity 
to sustain that role in terms of the actual content of policy became increasingly limited. So what we bump up against by the post-2011 period is that these regimes are, are now operating under very severe institutional and fiscal constraints with respect to their capacity to present themselves as the um, uh, as the managers of political economies in which the, the the redistributive commitments of their predecessors remain viable, and so what we find is that again these regimes confront quite deep institutional fiscal constraints that narrow the range of options that are available to them if they want to remain in power given the scale of the economic challenges they confront. And in my view, where we have arrived at the moment is is, uh, to a point at which I tend to see the political economies of the Middle East very much in the terms that the political scientist Adam Jaworski used to characterize this general condition that he described as poor capitalism. States weak as organizations, weak political parties, ineffective associations, mismanaged economies, welfare services fragmentary and rudimentary, and Jaworski talks about what he thinks that implies for the kinds of politics that emerge out of political economies that have those sorts of dominant attributes. And as a result, with all of these constraints, I think we, we find that the range of possibilities available to these regimes to respond to mass economic grievances represented in the uprisings of 2011 have simply become so limited that the inclusionary possibilities that might have provided a more meaningful um, response to the demands of protesters are simply unavailable to them as viable options. In addition, we have an international context that I think is both increasingly congenial toward authoritarianism as a system of rule and where processes of authoritarian learning and the dissemination of authoritarian practices into the MENA region has accelerated and deepened. They're learning from Russia, they're learning from uh, authoritarian allies how to deal with conditions of popular grievance. And then third and finally, we have contexts in which I see that models of development have become increasingly securitized so that mass politics is increasingly defined as a threat to the economic stability and growth of the state and where state society relations and conceptions of citizenship are now being recast in terms of the obligations of citizens to preserve conditions of economic stability. Now, you know, as I said, these are some notional arguments about why these regimes have moved in the directions that I've described over the last, you know, 40 minutes or so. 
But I want to end by, by suggesting that what I think we see emerging as a result of these strategic choices by highly constrained authoritarian incumbents is what I would characterize as a new social contract in the Middle East. Right? You know, when we talked a decade ago, I was part of a World Bank project called Unlocking the Employment Potential in the Middle East and North Africa Toward a New Social Contract. And the idea was that the scale of the employment gap in the region would force regimes to undertake participatory, inclusive national dialogues around the reorganization of Arab political economies in ways that would provide effective responses to the employment gap the region faced. That didn't happen. Instead, we had regimes that prevaricated, that adopted strategies of authoritarian upgrading, that held on to power until the point when they were confronted with the challenges of the Arab uprisings, when the limits of the options available to them became starkly clear, following which they moved in more repressive and exclusionary directions, around political economies that I would argue are now acquiring the form of what I would describe as exclusionary solidarity, chauvinistic welfare. These are terms that are often applied to right-wing parties in Europe, but I think they're becoming increasingly important ideas in understanding the organization of political economies and of social policy and of state-society relations and of the expectations that states have of their citizens in the MENA region in the aftermath of the Arab uprisings. So, you know, if, if these are in fact, if these kinds of, of strategies of governance are in fact a response to fiscal institutional constraints that limit the flexibility and options of these regimes, if they are able to become consolidated, and I think that's still an open question, then we stand at a point in which we may be watching at least some subset of Arab countries move toward modes of authoritarian governance that, as I said earlier, mark a very sharp break from the inclusionary populist redistributive modes of an earlier era toward these exclusionary repressive modes anchored in chauvinistic conceptions of exclusionary solidarity that could well become the template for authoritarian governance in the Arab world um, for a long time, for a long time to come. That's excellent, superb, thanks. Um, I thought I, it was pretty depressing. Oh, well, I, I thought it was uh, magnificent right here, but I have probably <laughs> the advantage of, of that I, Steve has a piece on the monkey cage. Is that New York Times yeah, or Post? Wa Washington Post. Which, yeah. It's uh, Washington Post, and that he delivered a paper here that I've just recently reread. Um, so a lot of this is, is fresh in my mind. I'll ask the first question while everyone else gets their thoughts together. And it's, it's taking you right back to the beginning, and, and, and the point is well taken, that, that it, it's, not a, it's not a failure to democratize, it, it's, it's the success of the authoritarian states to innovate. But I'm just trying to think of a kind of larger, but that authoritarian innovation seems to be much more thickly or commonly represented in the Middle East and elsewhere. So it's, it's taking you back to the Middle East uh, by default, I suppose. And I, I'm wondering, 
what it says about the Middle Eastern state, if there is such a, a model of the Middle Eastern state as a comparative unit. And your notion of poor, or not your notion, but the notion of poor capitalism, of course, starts off from the basis of weak states. Mm. Now, the tension there, I suspect, is that, and I take your description of, uh, of upgrading, and they're not weak states. They're incredibly flexible. They somehow realize where their weaknesses are and move to limit them. So in a way, the, is there yeah. a kind of, uh, is there a way of abstracting this to a, a kind of innovative, innovating model of the Middle Eastern state? What does this stay about, say about the evolution of the Middle Eastern state? Hmm. Hmm. Um, you know, when I uh, first began pulling the ideas together that would become this, this framework of authoritarian upgrading, it really seemed to me that, in fact, what we were witnessing was not an expression of um, divergence between the trajectories of governance in the Arab world and those of other regions, but convergence. That this uh, effort to, to appropriate and exploit electoral frameworks in ways that actually impeded meaningful redistribution of political power that this effort to um, gradually contain civil societies in ways that undermine their autonomy, that efforts to introduce selective economic reforms uh, along lines that generated benefits for regimes and their privileged networks, uh, all of that, all of these, these different components of upgrading in fact, defined, it, defined a set of tactics that were much more widely deployed by authoritarian regimes. So I actually saw it as kind of pushing against exceptionalist arguments, as, as representing an instance in which perhaps through processes of authoritarian learning, which I've also done a bit of work on, we were seeing Arab incumbents, authoritarian incumbents, begin to embrace lessons that they had seen were effective in authoritarian regimes outside the region, so so I actually had a you know quite a different take on it. In terms of weak state states and and and, and, and poor capitalism, I'm not sure there's such a big contradiction between um, a conception of these regimes as having highly developed capacities to make the kinds of adjustments in their strategies of governments that are needed both to contain challenges and to preserve their own authority and the conception that these are regimes that lack the capacity to manage challenges of economic development, challenges of human capital upgrading, educational systems that truly function, that lack the capacity to respond to um, the, the collapse of social welfare systems and the erosion of social safety nets. You know, in other words, for reasons in which there may perhaps be even some direct trade-offs, the investment of energy and time and resources on the part of these regimes is very heavily skewed toward the kinds of capacities that will ensure their survival. And so the idea that they would then be far less efficient in areas that are often used to define state capacity in developmental terms or other, that doesn't strike, again, doesn't strike me as necessarily um, inconsistent. Okay, cool. All right, who wants to ask the next question? Yes, Stephanie. 
Yeah, no, that's 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 a good question, and I and I think I think we see two different strategies um, through which social bases are being reconfigured. If we imagine that uh, up until quite recently these regimes were were character were defined um, along the lines that David Waldner's work on the political economy of development in in the Arab world suggested that these were cross class coalitions held together through the provision of selective benefits that were broadly available to wide segments of society, in particular through food subsidies, energy subsidies, universal access to education, cheap housing, um, medical care, all of these kinds of things, even though we know in many instances that the principal beneficiaries of these systems are not the poor, but, but those who are better off, there were systems of social policy that sustained broadly defined cross-class coalitions. We're beginning to see a move away from <coughs> the kind of selective benefits that supported those broad cross-class coalitions. Now, uh, from the perspective of the World Bank, if you reduce fuel subsidies, as is happening in many... Uh, in Egypt, fuel subsidies, at least until oil prices collapsed, were the single biggest contributor to Egyptian debt. It was something like 40 billion Egyptian pounds a year were spent on fuel subsidies, most of which benefited the middle class and the better off. But nonetheless, you know, if you begin to, to, to rein in and pull back on social provision as a basis for sustaining, both, both for, as, as an expression of the regime's commitment to the economic security of all citizens, but also in ways that um, in some respects increase the economic marginality and exclusion of certain segments of society, then I think what you do see out of that is, is a process of narrowing of a social base of a regime. So that's one strategy. The other strategy is you, I mean, you talked about more homogeneous societies. The other far more explicit strategy that we're seeing, I think, is in um, demographically more heterogeneous, ethnically sectarian societies that, that experience or that exhibit very deep ethno-sectarian divisions. And again, if you look at Syria as a case, or Bahrain as a case, yes, it's true that there are Shia who continue to benefit from some degree of, of um, public spending. 
the, the, the levels of discrimination in the allocation of public resources in Bahrain by sect is very clear. Uh, if you look at Syria, there's been a far more dramatic um, process through which the social bases of the regime have been reconstructed. Uh, and, and, and in which uh, not only have certain ethno-sectarian communities um, been redefined as critical, uh, critical elements of the regime's social base, but the very nature of what, co- of what constitutes state-society relations is being redefined. One of the principal criteria for demonstrating one's loyalty to the, to the Syrian regime at the moment is participation in violence. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. Sort of collective participation in violence has become a defining framework of state-society relations in, in, in Syria. And um, we see that there has been a very explicit uh, marginalization, exclusion, repression of large numbers of Syrians, including many who were among the beneficiaries of the regime's redistributive policies in earlier, in earlier phases, as members of the regime's social base. In peripheral cities, in Dera, in, in Dera Zor, in, in other areas that were prominently involved in the uprising. I mean, these communities were among the losers of the selective, politically managed processes of economic reform that the regime engaged in in the prior decade, and it's one of the reasons why those communities embraced the uprising so enthusiastically, but the consequence for them has been their absolute, complete exclusion from what is seen as the, the, the regime's social base as currently constituted. So I think there are these both both of these strategies I think are at work. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, I have two questions. First of all, if you basically say that the authoritarian regimes are are <coughs> remaining quite strong, so how do you, how do you explain the success of ISIS? And the second question would be uh, I know it's a little bit about the the, the topic which which you mentioned in the beginning that was mainly uh, uh, actually in the 90s, but still, if the authoritarian regimes are so resistant in the Middle East more than in other, other parts of, of the world, so how do, you, how do you explain this? Is there something cultural? Is there, you know, you mentioned it, is it religious? <coughs> how do you explain this? this you know, in, in, in terms of, of, of the rise of ISIS, I, I, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's a complex phenomenon to be sure, but I think it's facilitated at least in part by precisely these processes of reconfiguring the regime's social base that we've been discussing in the sense that those who clearly identify themselves as excluded, as marginal, um, as no longer um, aligned in any respect with with the regime, I, I, I imagine, and I'm, I'm really just speculating, become much more um, responsive to uh, alternative 
uh, ideologies, alternative political structures that seem to offer them uh, a sense of belonging, uh, a sense of membership, a sense of, of, of contributing to something bigger than themselves. And, and so it wouldn't at all surprise me if at least for the, the relatively small number of Syrians who've affiliated with ISIS, um, that it is explicitly a sense that they are responding to the uh, repressive exclusionary policies of the Assad regime that has made ISIS seem to some extent as, as, as a viable uh, alternative to them. So I think there are interaction effects between these phenomena. <coughs> I, I'm, I'm actually not suggesting that the Arab world is distinctive in the extent to which authoritarian regimes can navigate sort of the challenges of <coughs> of, of the uh, early 21st century. Uh, quite the opposite. I, I, I mentioned that I, I think they are um, they are taking advantage of a global context that has seen the resurgence of authoritarianism as a viable model of rule globally. You know, the Freedom House in, in the United States just released its 2015 report, Freedom in the World, and I forget the exact title of the report, you could Google it, but it is something like Democracy on Retreat, the Return of the Iron Fist. Right? This is the title of the global assessment of political trends with respect <coughs> to the health of democracy in the world. And the overall health is found to be fairly precarious. So with, with countries like Russia, Iran, China, perhaps to some extent Turkey, <coughs> other regional powers, even global powers, seeming to present viable alternatives to democracy with the growing skepticism and... Um, uh, I was going to say delegitimation or just declining credibility of democracy as the most effective form of governance for uh, many countries in the world. Um, I, I think we are operating in a, in a broader international environment in which there are far fewer constraints on, on Arab incumbents uh, to implement uh, authoritarian and, and, and perhaps even increasingly repressive and exclusionary authoritarian strategies of governance. Right. Yes, sir. Um, <coughs> you have a picture of authoritarianism, increasing repression and so forth across the Middle East and the North African region. And yet within that, you see some societies in which that's much less the case. For example, I'm thinking of Tunisia, which seems to have adopted to be relatively successful in democratic <coughs> terms yeah. without adopting repressive measures. Jordan seems to be relatively successful, I don't know, maybe Lebanon as well. These countries perhaps are different from countries like Egypt and Syria which are much, much more repressive. Can you elaborate yeah. a little bit about the yeah. different countries and why some are more successful than others, yeah. or see less need for significant amounts of increased authoritarianism. Yeah, I, I mean, very quickly, I think I might code Jordan and Lebanon somewhat differently than, than you. Jordan has introduced new, more draconian press control laws. 
It has cracked down on civil society. It has more um, repressively uh, excluded the Islamic Action Front from the political arena. Um, it's taken a number of steps, certainly not as harsh as those in some of, of, of the surrounding states, but but I, I'm not, I, I, I wouldn't view Jordan in the category that you described, or Lebanon, frankly, uh, for that admitted. Tunisia is an outlier. It's an interesting case. It is the only case in the region that shows any promise of democratic consolidation. Um, in fact, uh, again, in the Freedom House report in, in 2014, comparing the extent to which region, you know, uh, uh, the regions were ranked free, um, the Middle East was the lowest in the world. It was found to be 2% free. Uh, and that, that score included Israel, by the way, uh, the lowest of all world regions. In, in the 2015 Freedom House report, um, the Middle East has increased to be 5% free. And it is Eurasia which takes the prize for being the least free region in the world. It is 0% free. And I think that may have a great deal to do with some of the things we've seen happen in, in Russia under President Putin. But nonetheless, it is only Tunisia's experience that has produced that increase from 2 to 5%. Uh, I, What's the secret of their success? I, 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 I'm not sure it's entirely a secret. I, I think it is a, a small homogeneous country in, in sectarian terms with relatively high levels of per capita income, relatively high levels of education, um, with a military that accepted its responsibility to withdraw from the political arena following bin Ali's uh, departure from the country. Um, and so you, you could look at, at Tunisia as containing far more propitious conditions for uh, a democratic transition to succeed. Uh, let's also be mindful, though, not that I have a compulsion to be pessimistic, but, but let's also be mindful that, that Tunisia's experience, I think, cannot yet be considered a, a complete success. But, but by any standard, by any standard, it stands out in, in the region. Just one quick anecdote. I, I sit on the advisory board of the Freedom House Middle East Review Committee, and this year when it became clear that as we added up all of the, ag uh, the, the individual category scores for Tunisia, its aggregate score would place it in the fully free category. And the room broke out in applause. It is the first time since Lebanon in the 1970s that an Arab country in the Freedom House report has been rated fully free. So it is, it is quite a dramatic um, event. It's one I think we should not minimize. Uh, I, I think it is probably attributes quite distinctive to Tunisia that account for its variation from the broader pattern. Yeah, there's a question. First, isn't it? Yeah, you first and then you next. Do you think they would just crush those efforts, or are they just, you know, waiting and see what would happen? And, and 
how do you see those things developing? Can you see the regime agreeing to some sort of power sharing or? Um, no, I, 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 I think you're absolutely right. For, for at least the first several years of the uprising, there was something of a tacit understanding, at least between the PYD and, and, and the Assad regime. There were other Syrian factions, the, Syrian, the Kurdish National Council, uh, which was more closely aligned to the, to the opposition and so on, which certainly did not benefit from <coughs> any kind of tacit understanding. But, but the PYD is clearly the most powerful Kurdish actor in in majority Kurdish areas in Syria and we have <coughs> excuse me all kinds of evidence of the extent to which the regime uh, had uh, established a kind of modus vivendi with the PYD which permitted permitted it to survive <coughs> one of the things that's interesting is the extent to which that now seems to be breaking down uh, the PYD and the regime have been engaged in a number of very serious clashes recently. It isn't clear to me that the previous um, kind of tacit cooperation is going to survive much longer. Uh, it certainly seems to me, I mean, one of the justifications from the regime for establishing this tacit cooperation was its need to remove its military forces from the east and northeast of Syria in order to concentrate on the more densely populated urban backbone of the country as the uprising escalated. Uh, and so it basically abandoned that part of Syria and, and left it in the hands of the PYD. But were we to find ourselves in a position in which the regime had been able to reconsolidate its authority over all of Syrian territory, which I view as quite far-fetched at the moment, I can't imagine that it would permit the PYD to um, hold on to the degree of power it has accumulated in the absence of government forces. Okay. Yeah. In, in, can I ask you, in, in what respect in particular, in terms of the, the strategies of regimes, what, in what yeah. respect, yeah. Um, because, because, I mean, when you look at, um, you know, the authoritarianism of Brady, but in the meantime, that all these changes are happening, there are a lot of resources and patterns in the world that are changing, you know, like how oil prices are falling, and, you know, the benefits. Right. That's right. Well, I, I do think that, that money... Um, creates opportunities that those who don't have it um, don't have, if that makes sense. Look, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's very, very clear that even as countries like um, Jordan and Egypt uh, and Morocco 
Lebanon begin to retreat from the expanded social uh, spending that they put in place in the immediate aftermath of the of the uprisings, countries like Saudi Arabia, um, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Oman, um, even to some extent Bahrain, although partly through gifts and borrowing from its neighbors, have been able to s- sustain programs of of very very high levels of social expenditure. Uh, far longer than than other countries in the region, and and have in some respects had the luxury of avoiding some of the more directly repressive options that um, that other governments have tended to rely on far more heavily. It doesn't mean uh, you know if you look at Saudi Arabia, for example, and the increasing repression of the Shia minority in the east. It's clear that that they don't view um, the possibility of buying off critics as the only tactic that that they need to deploy in order to preserve their security. Although whether they're making things worse in the process is, of course, an interesting question. But certainly, the resources expand the range of of, of options that they have available to them. Uh, and there is a literature which suggests that monarchies are, in fact for a variety of reasons, more resilient and better equipped to cope with these episodes of contestation than the republics. I'm, I'm not sure I completely buy those arguments, but they're out there, and resources are certainly a part of that, of that argument. Uh, I, I did emphasize the institutional and fiscal constraints that I think were pushing some Arab regimes toward these more exclusionary strategies of rule. And certainly, even with declining oil prices, we find a number of capital surplus oil exporters who really don't yet need to confront those kinds of choices. They have a, a, a broader range of options. Sure. Yeah. Um, hi. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for, for your remarks. Um, I would like to know your take on two points. Uh, the first one is about the importance of the armed forces in uh, affecting the resilience of our uh, well, Arab regimes, especially their often sectarian or foreign nature of, of the armed forces. And uh, the second point would be on the role of foreign actors. You have focused your um, presentation on domestic variables, you know, the, the cultural reasons or the structure of these specific regimes in order to explain their resilience. I've, I've always seen the, the Middle East as a case where you have particularly permeable states uh, that are affected by foreign actors. If you, if you look at the last few years, we have seen foreign military interventions in Libya, Syria, Iraq, Yemen. And how do you think these interests of foreign actors uh, affect the ability of these countries to develop into demo- democracies. Just, just because we mentioned Tunisia before, uh, it's interesting to see that Tunisia is the most successful of the core Arab awakening countries, but is also the one where foreign involvement was at the lowest level. Thank you. Yeah. Um, 
First, though, I, I, I was not suggesting that it's cultural factors. That no, no, I said that you mentioned those, those I, domestic I, I did, but not, I, I, anyway, just to make clear, I, I, I tend to be somewhat critical of culturalist uh, arguments. <coughs> armed forces have played a critical role. And, and the cohesion of, of armed forces, their subordination to civilian authorities, the extent to which they are prepared to shoot their own citizens, I mean, all of these um, have been very significant factors in trying to kind of parse out the, the, the likelihood of regime survival in a variety of, of, of cases. We have cases in which militaries participated in the removal of an incumbent when it was felt that that, that individual, Hosni Mubarak in particular, threatened uh, the stability of the system as a whole. So the military acted as an agent of kind of system preservation or, or, or system survival in that case and exhibited a fairly high degree of cohesion uh, in doing so. In, in, in Syria, um, the, the military initially went through a period of quite extraordinary fragmentation uh, in which it, 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 it experienced enormous numbers of defections, particularly of Sunni Forces, although I, I don't think we have any evidence of unit-level defections in the Syrian case. Um, and as a result, the, the uprising produced a very, very rapid restructuring of the Syrian security apparatus mm -hmm. along much narrower sectarian um, and, and uh, uh, m more narrowly sectarian grounds, so that... Um, many of those um, who were seen as vulnerable to defection or whose loyalty was seen as questionable uh, were either simply permitted to defect or were not even called up initially and they were replaced by segments of society who were seen by the regime as, 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 as more loyal. Um, in Jordan we've seen the importance that the king attaches to sustaining tribal loyalties and the role of the tribes in the armed forces clearly very important. So so I don't think we can underestimate the significance of the armed forces. And, and one of the things that the Arab uprisings has done, in fact, has been to reinvigorate a, a whole field of study around civil-military relations in the Middle East, which had been neglected for something like 30 or, or 40 years <coughs> and is now receiving much more attention. So that's clearly an important topic. In terms of foreign actors, um, Again, I, I think the, the, the effects and, and the intentions of, of foreign actors have been, have been fairly um, diverse. We had a, an external intervention in Bahrain, which is clearly counter-revolutionary. <coughs> We've had uh, intervention of a wide variety of foreign actors in the Syrian case, uh, some of whom have um, been critical to the survival of the regime, uh, others clearly among the most uh, violent challengers uh, uh, to the regime. Um, Libya, Libya is an interesting case to be sure. I'm I'm not sure where it fits. In fact, <coughs> in the broader sort of analytic frame I've I, I've been developing, in some respects it really does stand apart. Um, in, in Yemen, uh, I'm not actually entirely sure that we've had foreign military intervention. 
I know that, that, that there are those who claim Iranian intervention on, on behalf of the Houthi. I meant more in terms of U.S. involvement in covert operations against Al-Qaeda there. That was my foreign actor. I see. And, and what would the relationship of that be to broader questions of regime survival? Well, I think it was quite interesting because if you see the shift in U.S. foreign policy toward Yemen, uh, there was this tense relationship with Saleh, but then the United States just moved uh, from Saleh to Hadi and then to the Houthi, as long as these different actors would actually... Uh, they, they offered a guarantee that the war, the COVID war against Al-Qaeda would continue. Right. There was also this uh, negotiation with Isla, the, 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 the opposition party, and the theme was always the same. So, my, because I asked that you, uh, this question to you, because you you said you study like in comparative like comparative politics. So I was interested. Could it be that the Middle East is different from other regions because foreign involvement in the Middle East, also in terms of military involvement, is particularly more significant compared to South America or East or Asia? Ukraine or? Well, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, you know, I. I I, I have to say I'm I'm not entirely sure how uh, you know whatever you want to call it counterterrorism efforts on the part of the United States bear on bigger questions of regime survival or transformation in the Yemeni case. I mean the Houthi, despite rumors that they've been trained and equipped by Iran, um, I think those those claims are treated with a certain degree of of skepticism by by external actors. There was a, a degree of external intervention in the sense that the initial transition framework was negotiated through the GCC with UN participation and so on. Um, but I, I, I think it, it might be more accurate to make the case that uh, the recent developments in Yemen have a great deal to do with the fragmentation of military uh, units, military forces in Yemen, uh, and the extent to which Yemen lacked any kind of cohesive command and control structure over its military forces um, that might have permitted the military to play the role that it did either in Tunisia or in Egypt. Yeah. Um, oh, no, no, you first, then you. <laughs> Um, back to your earlier point, um, when you mentioned the GCC monarchies, um, because you classed them in the first group of Morocco and Jordan, mm. I wondered um, if you thought about it, if you could expand on the mechanisms you think they might use as time goes on, um, either assuming that they do continue um, well into the future using the mechanisms they have been so far, or if they start to change, because you could, you could argue that in the Emirates and Saudi Arabia, they started to become a little bit more oppressive, but not so much like in the second group. And um, when you mentioned the uh, monarchy argument, I wondered if that, if that was in response to, uh, as the best example of it, great wars in Yeah. And if you could just elaborate on that, because that would be... In, wh in what sense? Well, not his... Well, no, he... he and Right. Greg, Greg Gauz and Sean Yom did a piece in the Journal of Democracy on the resilience of monarchies. Mm. And I was referring more to that than to Greg's Brooking piece. But I, I'm afraid, you know, my memory is a bit of a, a, of a weak instrument. 
I, 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 I couldn't claim. I, 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 I would need to revisit Greg's Brookings piece before feeling comfortable co- commenting on it. But, but in terms of, of, of GCC countries and, and the extent to which they're uh, adopting some of these similar strategies, I think we're seeing that in, in, in actually quite a wide number of different domains. One of the most troubling to me is the extent to which these regimes have very willingly embraced the politicization of citizenship and the extent to which we're now seeing governments in Kuwait and Bahrain, I I think in in the Emirates as well, and perhaps stripping dissidents of citizenship. It's it's an extraordinary move when you think about it, uh, to penalize them for activities uh, critical of of ruling families, ruling regimes. We've seen quite dramatic uh, um, expansion in the control of media, uh, and not only um, efforts to manage programming of existing media, uh, but creating environments in which um, criminal charges have been liable against reporters for things like insulting the king, which has happened a couple of times in Bahrain, you know, things that would not have been expected uh, prior to, to the Arab uprisings. Almost across the board, there have been crackdowns on civil society, certainly on access to those countries for international civil society organizations. Um, It's almost impossible for any of the international human rights groups to get into Bahrain uh, these days. And we've seen, I think, um, much more willingness to criticize some of the foreign uh, allies of these governments when they feel that they have taken steps that uh, that they view as as crossing certain political red lines, for example, uh, the expulsion by Bahrain of a very senior U.S. diplomat, Tom Malinowski, I think I think it is the most senior um, expulsion of a U.S. diplomat in American diplomatic history, um, a, a deputy assistant secretary thrown out of Bahrain for meeting with opposition groups um, and and the stated justification for that act was that he met with them before he met with the government. But uh, he may not be going back, which in itself is well, yeah, yeah, there's been a bit of concern among those who looked to the U.S. government to uh, respond a bit more forcefully to what Bahrain did. Um, and I think Malinowski's return uh, sends something of a mixed message to the Bahraini authorities. But, but yes. But nonetheless, you know, as you don't PNG, as they say, a very senior diplomat um, as a matter of course in a country which, with which you have a very close strategic relationship. Certainly. So, so I do think that we see in a variety of domains that these governments are adopting many of these tactics. Authoritarianism. Uh, would you say it's on the shakiest grounds it's ever been 
in the past this kind of upgraded version? Hmm. Um, or is it, is yeah. it the same just up here? You know, I was, I, I'm not completely sure about your first question. Are you suggesting that, that it's the monarchies, it, it's the monarchies but, not, but not the others? Or, uh, yeah, there's definitely a yeah. thing. No, I, I don't think that's the case. I, I, I think the, the phenomenon extends beyond the monarchies. But as I said, I think having, you know, if you have a sovereign wealth fund with a trillion dollars in it, like the Qataris do, you can buy yourself an awful lot of. Of, of of goodwill among your uh, your three hundred thousand citizens. I mean, it, uh, you know, s- s- I, but I I certainly don't see the phenomenon as limited to to the monarchies. Um, are they on shaky ground? I, I I do in some respects think they're on on shaky ground. I, I I don't view the governance frameworks that are emerging in the region as having yet become consolidated. I I, I think they are in the process of formation. I think they may well be vulnerable. And so I think it's going to be very important to watch over the coming few years whether they are able to become consolidated or not. Uh, and and it's 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 an issue area that I think would would justify, you know, more academic a- attention from sort of academics like like us around the table. Are these experiments succeeding or not? And if not, why? Actually, in, in line with what you've just been saying, I seem to remember at the time of the Tunisian uprising that there was a sort of general feeling in the Arab world that they were quite ashamed that the level of their economic achievement was in some cases little above African countries. And I want to ask you, with all this Freedom House and movement towards the return of the Iron Fist, is there any universal economic criterion for measuring a country and a country's output GDP so that everybody can go on something like we have in Britain all the time, all these tables of you know who's top of the table and so on? And if there was, do you think that this would have an effect on the populations of these countries to say, look, we must do better, and these regimes are not delivering? Or do you think they do deliver? Um, I'm I'm jotting down here because I've just made a very quick list of five major databases that provide exactly the kind of thing that you're looking for. The World Development Indicators, I think, are perhaps uh, among the most widely available that include all kinds of, of statistics about uh, economic performance of governments a- around the world. Transparency Interna- International um, has statistics. There are statistics about the ease of doing business and corruption indexes uh, that you can consult. The Millennium, the Millennium Challenge Corporation has statistics that can be accessed on the Internet that will give you comparative uh, data on comparative economic performance. Uh, an organization based here in London called the Legatum Institute publishes something called the Annual Index of Well-Being, which uh, introduces a number of, of, of social indicators into a kind of comparative assessment of the performance of governments uh, around the world. So, so there's there's an enormous number of data sources you could turn to for that for that kind of thing. Now, the second part of the question then is... Are they conscious of these things, and does it matter to them? Um, it, it, they, they, are, they are conscious of it. Um, I, I think 
it has very little, and 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 at times they actually uh, do show some evidence of taking these indicators quite seriously. Um, with respect to the Freedom House indicators, for example, when Jordan was downgraded one year, the ambassador went to Freedom House to complain. So I mean, you know, they they do they do make a difference, but. But I, I, you know, if you were to look at at, at the um, world development indicators, um, oh, also sorry, Davos, the World Economic Forum publishes a, a, a annual data on economic competitiveness, which contains some very very interesting findings. Again, publicly accessible on the internet. Um, and and I, I I I do have to say though that I think, uh, you know, the the fact that Egypt ranks. 114th out of 134 countries, something like that, with respect to performance of its higher education sector, is not something that General Sisi weighs very heavily when he's making decisions about public policy. I I I, uh, I, I don't think that these kinds of indicators factor very seriously into very senior level considerations uh, of, of policy making. Um, I'm not sure how widely known they are. I mean, that would be very interesting. I, 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 I don't know. Um, I, I certainly think that there uh, are technocrats. I mean, there are levels at which all of these countries possess a certain degree of technocratic expertise within various ministries, within various government agencies. And at that level, I think these indicators matter a great deal. Um, when a country approaches uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation for funding, um, it is expected to have met certain benchmarks or to be, a, to be able to demonstrate progress towards certain benchmarks. So there are moments when these indicators carry a certain amount of weight. Uh, I, I doubt how much that occurs at the very senior levels of government. Right. You've asked the question before. Is anyone who hasn't asked the question? Yeah. I don't know if it's in your study area, but my question is about Turkey, as you mentioned it as kind of inclining to totalitarianism. What is it? Is no, no, authoritarianism, like, potentially, not I totalitarianism. Know, I know I'm Turkish. I'm a journalist. Okay. I know the case. So, what is your opinion about the reasons? What do you think? What are the reasons? Um, I'm 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 really out of my depth in 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 responding to that one. I mean, I, you know, you're 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 a journalist. You know the case very well. What, you, you know, I I will say I've I've had the chance to have some conversations with some senior Turkish uh, officials, AKP officials, and the extent to which they justify the trend in in policy in Turkey as a defense of the initial democratic advances for which they claim responsibility in the period from 2002 to 2008 is quite striking because they continue to describe the current shifts in policy as extensions of their commitment to the full democratization of Turkey despite the fact that the rest of the world sees it in exactly the opposite terms what is it that's motivating Mr. Erdogan? I, your guess is as good as mine. Right. Uh, yes, sir. Did you have a question? No? No? 
So the final question goes to you. Um, changing the perspective slightly, do you think there's an appropriate policy response from Western governments, either regionally, in your classes, or individually, or is it just going to be muddled through the next three You know, I have a very, very straightforward metric that I would be delighted to see become the defining framework for how governments like my own organize their relationships with their counterparts in the Middle East. It's very simple. The quality of our relationship with your government will be contingent on the quality of your governance. Period. I, it's never going to happen. Um, but I, I really do think that until the U.S. and perhaps other governments are prepared to take into account uh, the way in which uh, these leaders govern and the extent to which our associations with them generate negative public perceptions, um, not only of the United States but of other Western governments, but also um, exacerbate many of the challenges, many of the, uh, of the domestic problems that have consequences that we then end up confronting, including terrorism, including rat, uh, you know, extremism, uh, you know, if we if we are not prepared to acknowledge those connections and to adjust our policies accordingly, uh, I'm afraid I I don't see uh, much much chance that we will become active participants in efforts to really improve the lives and well-beings of of many of the citizens in the Arab world. And I think that's a good note to end on. We thank uh, President Biden for our thoughts.